0: This is the Delivery Space podcast. Whether you're interested in business change or transformation, we've got some great content lined up for you. We launch into different areas of project delivery and bring you those insights and experiences that you don't get from a book. Welcome, it's Sharon and Nisha. This is episode number six on Less Versus Safe. Good morning, Nisha.
1: Hey, Sharon, how you doing? Really good,
0: thank you. How about you?
1: I'm cool. I'm excited that Ben is on with us today. Welcome, Ben.
2: Thank you very much. It's brilliant to be here. Thank you for having me on.
1: And thank you for joining us. So early um, in the morning on a Sunday, we really value your time.
2: Oh, rather early than late. I think it's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a morning person more than an evening person.
1: That suits us. So well. So guys, um, Ben has coached and trained and been passionate about software and people since 2009, proving that it's possible to sustaining change, build relationships, trust and respect at all levels of an organisation. The creator of the UK's best large scale scrum community and the most successful podcast dedicated to all things less. Ben is the UK's only certified LESS trainer and certified coach. Ben's focus for 2022 is to continue building awareness of the usefulness and power of large scale scrum as well as developing the agile communities of the emergent field of professional team coaching. Ben, welcome again. You have done so much within this field and we hope that um, for the rest of the pod, you can share your experiences with us.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. No, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to our, uh, yeah, it's a great topic.
1: Yeah. Safe
2: versus less.
1: Yeah. So at, at a high level, can you, for for our listeners, draw that distinction between less and safe?
2: Yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll try two different ways. Uh, the first way is I, I seem to recall when I was uh, a younger man and lots of my friends were going travelling. Uh, they would go around the world. Some of them would always go on tours and they treated it very much like a holiday. They, they may have travelled around the world and gone to different countries, but they were very much tourists. You know, they weren't they weren't really travelling. And then I had a few friends who were absolutely like, no, we are travelling. You know, and they had a backpack. They had no idea where they were going. They figured it out day to day, but they they knew what they wanted to achieve. And they were, and yeah, and they and they enjoyed it, and they grew massively as people. The people that were the like, more like tourists, and I classed myself in the tourist bracket on this one. They learned a lot, and maybe some of their behaviours changed, but really, it's just a long holiday for them. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of how I view safe and less. I think safe is like a, it's like a holiday. It's like a bus tour. You know, they they tell you where you're going to go. They tell you what the stops are along the way. You got a a huge choice of different experts who can take you on the journey, but ultimately, it's kind of the same thing. You're just trying to complete a puzzle which has been defined by someone else. Uh, it pitches itself, you know, as this fully all-inclusive holiday and it's complete. It's a whole thing that makes sense as a whole mm-hmm. And I think that's why safe does really well in that respect. you know, it is. Um, As I understand it, you know, it's uh, got loads of venture capitalist investors, they have to see a return on their money. So yeah, they they make a load of money and they sell this big thing, which is complete a lovely, lovely, all inclusive holiday. Less is different. Less is purposefully incomplete. It isn't designed to be the whole picture. So less is much more like traveling. Mm. You know where you want to go. You know, maybe broadly some of the places you want to go along the way, but you react to change a lot and you could wake up any one given day and totally change your mind. And as long as that aligns with where you want to go and it aligns with your belief system of how you want to behave, then you can do that.
1: Yeah, I love that analogy. And I'll, I'll, to, to carry that analogy on, right, We, my sister and I, we've been on all inclusives and we've been the in the backpacker scenario as well. All-inclusives kind of hem you in a little bit. So if you want a different meal in the evening to what a potential hotel mm-hmm. offers, you you're stuck for options, right? And you've got, you start feeling the rigidity of that structure around you. Give me an example of where uh, safe does or maybe doesn't um, impose that kind of a structure.
2: I think the. The batching up of effect, what they would call sprints—I yeah. I don't think I would actually call sprints because they don't really follow Scrum. I and mean, Safe successfully kind of broke Scrum when it kind of first died and how it's going to be implemented. I think that that rigid structure of saying you have n number of sprints, and at the end of that number of sprints, then everything gets on some—it you know, goes on some train—and then someone tries to kind of uh, optimize all these little locally optimized pieces mm. and then maybe you've got you know something at the end for um like innovation or what ends up just basically being bug fixing and regression testing that that rigid structure it doesn't really encourage you to break out of that and some of that's because of the fact that what safe does do a decent job at is giving organizations a slightly different planning horizon so if you are going from a one-year uh, project-based organization one-year deliveries and safe comes along and you're only planning on three months well yes that is better but it's still very rigid in trying to keep you in that in that period, in this collection of sprints. And I think that that perturbs people from breaking away from it and also inhibits a lot of a change, which you can see if you do decide to wake up one morning and, and put something out into production or you do decide that actually um, your sprint lengths need to be shortened and you don't want to plan three months ahead. Like people do feel very hemmed into that. And it's a great way for senior leaders who aren't... Uh, Generally speaking, in my experience—I've seen ones that aren't massively uh, technically minded. Mm. We kind of see complex software delivery as a as a, an effort, an uh, what's the word I'm looking for, an exercise in reductionism. How can I break down this big complex thing into lots of little things, and then get people to tell me about each of the little things, and then employ a program manager to bring all that stuff together into some sensible whole.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, and then they, you know, they will look at safe, and it really makes sense, and in that respect because you do get to break things down. So it kind of, you know, safe then does lead you to perhaps, you know, taking structured in such a way that enabled you to not focus on the customer and just focus on the little pieces. Yeah.
1: And then the focus. It's got its place.
2: It's got its place. It It helps reduce that planning horizon, which is great. But for many, I'm not sure if they could push themselves a bit further and decide to go off to a different country via a different travel mechanism if they, you know, if they had more support.
1: I like I like that. It feels to me like that that there is that structure there are organizations, mindsets, a culture um maybe that is more would be more suited to to that kind of uh, to something like safe. Um hmm. but yeah, immediately it strikes me as a way that focuses you on a job to be done, but it it leaves out Potentially the bigger picture to look at.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, it, it's, it's interesting the way that the safe structure allows people to persist certain, uh, wasteful dependencies. Mm. say safe, safe is almost if you, I mean, all organizations are based on silos, whether we like, or I mean, they're all, they're all silos. It's just a case of what type of silo you want to go for. Unless we build silos around customer needs. Yeah. And we adapt the organization based upon the priority of those customer needs. And if those customer needs diminish or less value, then that area kind of just diminishes and everyone focuses on some a customer need that is more valuable. And we focus on getting teams to interface from a technical dependency level, but try and leave the um, interface and the communication around the dependencies. And like we want teams to deliver whole features, not have to work for someone else. Now, what Safe does is that it allows you to structure an organization in a much more kind of technical silo manner, it doesn't encourage you to kind of focus on the customer or really have a whole product focus, and then gives you lots of interfaces, lots of different roles, Who then say, you talk to this person about that, you talk to that person about that. And what we end up with is effectively a project management structure in disguise. And I'm not saying it's uh, not right for people absolutely is right for people, but it's just a very different way of viewing things. And because it, it, it gives you a mechanism to allow people to all the multitude of roles to, to talk to each other, rather than less would say, well, look, let's totally minimize the number of roles we have. And let's change our structure. Mm-hmm. And then let's focus on the interfaces that we're left with. Like, you know, safe kind of has a big proliferation of communication channels.
1: Oh, yeah. And and those communication channels are only multiplied through the different configurations that it has. It's got something like four configurations all the way um, from the essential um, elements of it, all the way to full scale uh, portfolio and full scale safe. To me, it feels like there are a lot of boundaries um, being placed throughout all of them. Um, and from what I've seen um, and, and how I've had to kind of coach teams through it, it feels to me like there is a, a very heavy um, es- uh, heavy responsibility placed on teams for, to have those that, that structure of communication rather than it be free-flowing. Um, it, it, to me, large-scale scrum needs to be quite um, instinctual Um, within the teams that are part of it um, so that they kind of grow with it. You you need to allow that room for growth, um, especially Mm. when you're scaling Scrum rather than feel like an imposition of a structure on you. So I'd have to agree with you. There is that um, project management feel to handling those communications between team members um, and that that whole wrapper Around it, so yeah, it, it's it's not something that is sitting well with me at the moment, and I've I think I've got to I've got to widen my own experience of some safe configurations to to disprove my my yeah. my immediate feeling.
2: Like I must say that this is, you know, I, I don't want to. I'm not purposely trying to be controversial with this. I mean, I'm not saying that less is a panacea or that less is easy, but. Less is a very, very different approach to try and achieve to a, a level of nimbleness at yeah, scale. Yeah, yeah. You
1: know,
2: it's, it's a very different approach. And, you know, I, I've got two kids. I, I love an all-inclusive. I can go there. I don't have to think. You know, it's all laid on for me. If I want to go and go, go, to, go, on a tour, I go see someone at the front desk, I can go on a tour. Like, I know what's going to be for dinner most nights. You know, it's great. I want that sometimes. Yeah. But if I... But then I, I get I get a bit fat and I get a bit lazy. I don't learn very much about the about the area, and and it's great. So we always then try and have another week afterwards where we do just kind of say right, okay, we'll get this place here, and then let's just go wandering around. Let's go and see what we can discover about the location. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think it is a it's it's having that mixture of both and understanding what what's right for you as a as an organisation. But I think that from what I understand it. People in software development teams don't really like Agile that much anyway. <laughs> <You>
0: know, it
2: <laughs> seems to be it seems to be the people that aren't in the teams who have most of the conversations about it. Um, so when I look at less, actually what people do really enjoy working in less environments, particularly people who want to become extraordinary, like really, really technically proficient and want to work as part of a great team.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: what less does give a massive opportunity for is that this is all about making great teams. Like Scrum is about making great teams. It's not about making great products. Like great teams, great groups, they make great products. Scrum and Less are about making great teams. And the focus is on there. And it's about saying we need an organization full of experts. So let's get the most technically expert people who are happy to work in teams, all working together in step. And for me, I know it firsthand, it's a hugely rewarding environment. And I think it's much more uh, rewarding for many even say working in a in a very tightly contained little box on your own stuff, you know, and then hoping at some point someone over there in three three or four sprints times will magically piece it all together, and you're not going to have to deal with all of the defects. Mm. Yeah, you know, I would I would argue that uh, less is a much more um, less carries a much smaller carbon footprint and safe in that uh, respect.
0: Do
1: you think? Yeah, thank you for setting that scene. Sorry, Nisha. <laughs> no, I, I was just saying to Ben, thanks for setting that scene. It kind of sets the picture really nicely for us.
0: Absolutely. So Ben, in a client-vendor scenario, what are the key kind of organizational or cultural at- attributes that you've seen um, that need to be in place for a scaled frameworks to succeed?
2: It's a brilliant question. And I will plug my, my friend, uh, Dinesh Sharma, wrote a case study for a, for a, his last case study was a company called CETA, where he really talks about how he successfully brought a vendor um, into the fold. And and it is absolutely possible, but you're right, there are certain things that need to be in place. I think that the, if you're working in a complex environment, um, the, one of the big mistakes organizations make is that they treat it purely as contractual. And then the contract doesn't have any of the useful stuff in there about um, making sure that Um, for example, that a common definition of done is met between all teams. This isn't a separate vendor definition of done. This is our definition of done for the things we're working on. Because often vendors are going to be, or third parties are working on stuff which has to be integrated into into our larger ecosystem. So maybe having a common definition of done is an interesting thing to put in the contract to make sure that you you know, you fix some of the quality of what you're going to receive. I think that having vendors or third parties work on the same sprint cadence as the rest of the teams on the same sprint, effectively, is really important. I think that not seeing them as a third party, as a, as a vendor, effectively, is the most important thing. They they, they should be part of your organisation as much as possible. Because the moment they're not, and the moment it becomes about them uh, meeting a scope, right, then they'll they'll focus on meeting a scope. And I've been and um, you no. Know, a number of situations where we've had teams that would have so focused on meeting the scope. And even though the team, um, like a third party team, and even though the team that were going to be receiving the work that they were producing to then kind of maintain and grow, were saying to them all through the journey, like we need to get access to the code. Like, where's your design documentation? Where, where, where's some specification around these interfaces that you built? And they're like, oh no, no, it's fine, we'll give it to you, we'll give it to you. They never really provided it. They handed over this code base to this team and they effectively had to rewrite it. Mm-hmm. It, it it wasn't it wasn't up it wasn't up to scratch because it was seen too much like a professional role based relationship. I do this role, you do that role, and there's no no again it's that silo thing. There's no decent interface which actually allowed a little bit of um relationship to be built. I'm not saying friends, but a situation where people can be open and honest because mm. I think some of the things we put in place contractually, you know, over actually collaborating, it sounds familiar. Get in the way of building the right type of relationship so that people can be honest and you want a vendor to be honest and you want a vendor to give you the right thing at a a good quality. And I think the only way you can do that is by just treating them like almost like everybody else.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't think. Yeah, Anisha and I, we've kind of spoken about this in the past, haven't we, of just having one team rather than seeing that split between, which as you've described, Ben, can cause a divide and then a lack of honesty, which can impact the whole delivery. Yeah.
2: And, and and all of those things are then for me compounded by a lack of learning. Mm.
0: Yeah,
2: You have a vendor team going off doing things on their own. They don't learn anything about the rest of the, plat- rest of the product or the rest of the platform. Um, I say they don't make consistent design decisions or consistent implementation decisions or consistent testing decisions. You then have um, yeah, everyone else who's part of the organization working on their stuff who doesn't know what the vendor's doing, but they're not learning about what the vendor's doing. Where This is Conway's law in, at, at its finest. Yeah. We have two different people talking two very different languages, and then we have to find a way at some point to bring those together. And I think this is where less really comes into its own, because unlike SAFE... Which will happily say, okay, well, here's a vendor, we'll put that vendor on that backlog, they get their own product owner and their own scrum master, and don't worry, it will definitely, definitely will come together at the end, and there won't be any problems, unless we say, well, no, let's get everyone working from a single product backlog. And let's get everyone working on the same sprint, and ending at the same day, so that any vendors or other teams, at the end of a sprint, it all has to be together in the same place and tested consistently. So then we're bringing forward all of that integration. I mean, one of the worst things you can do in a vendor or third party situation is delay the integration of what they are producing with everything else. It would just be much more painful later. It may be painful now, but go through the pain now. And so in, and then by using a single backlog and by keeping people on singles of sprint with a common definition of done, what you are able to do then is start using some techniques like multi-team product backlog refinement,
0: Mm. which is the
2: greatest technique no one ever uses. And what we're talking about here is, say, get a vendor team and get one of the organisations, say, our teams, our teams, and then we get them in the same physical or virtual space. And we form two temporary subgroups, 50% of that team, 50% of that team come together. So we've got two mixed teams. And then those mixed little temporary groups, they do the refinement together. Mm -hmm. And so then they're learning about all the different items. So when they go back to form their original teams, you've got two teams who can pick any of the items that have been refined. All the design, implementation, all the contextual stuff, all the language begins to align because they're refining it together. And if you can refine it together and then you're bringing it together frequently, then you flush out so many of the problems that you get in a traditional kind of uh, vendor um, relationship.
1: I love this. Have you noticed how we are not really talking about a framework right now, but the key themes in terms of what you're bringing out, Ben, is the organizational mindset, it's the appetite for agility. It's, the, it's a learning mindset and it's maneuvering the teams to actually get a common purpose, but to get to a common purpose and a common vision, common set of goals quickly without imposing yeah. a huge structural overhead there. Not only yeah. that, you've actually drawn out um, a way of, of having a, almost like a collegiate relationship with vendors, suppliers, partners um, that we might work with and the way that you can do that. And I remember one of my managers, um, I, I had a role in broadcasting um, we were looking after an ad sales system and one of my managers says, Nish, if you've got to refer to a line in a contract to make the most of your uh, supply and vendor relationship, then there's already something majorly wrong. So, you know, the belief and the, um, the, the purpose of, of that relationship, and it it was great because you, you couldn't tell, um, within that organization who was, uh, which team member was from a supplier versus which team member, you know, was a, was a permit mm. from that organization. And that's brilliant to, to be able to foster that relationship. That's a, one of the foundational things in order to have agility, right?
2: Mm it's like and, really if we bring all that out it's about what are our relationships
1: yeah
2: you know and relationships are built one conversation at a time yeah and what underpins this is one the purpose of why we're in why we're doing what we're doing i think purpose-driven organizations are are brilliant i think that all too often you end up with that's often missed so mm. if we've got the the right we've got a strong purpose we worked on our own values and beliefs and we can have real meaningful conversations build relationships that are above just uh just a professional kind of doctor, lawyer, coach, coachee um, type relationships. We have more meaningful conversations. It's easier to learn. And I think that we do, you're right. You, the lines do blow and you can't tell who works for who. I mean, one of the interesting kind of side effects, like little side notes on this is that whenever I've, you know, so many of organizations that I've worked in particularly the large banks.
0: Mm.
2: And I think of it as a Royal bank of Scotland or even Deutsche Bank, or even JP Morgan. That the the one thing that actually was quite great is when we had third party kind of contractors on a team who really believed in the way that we wanted to work and understood that you know really aligned with values and beliefs, they were able to grow a much broader set of skills much more quickly than the permanent member of staff. Mm-hmm. Because the permanent members of staff generally were, even though they may want to learn and they and at times of the year they are already going for learning new skills and working together, ultimately they knew they were going to be assessed on how well they stayed in their box of a role description.
0: Hmm.
2: And they, they, they may be thinking about the next job or where their career is going to go, but what it comes down to is for their bonus, for their pay rise, it's going to be how well they've developed the skills within their very tightly confined box, whereas people weren't in that box and they were aligned with all of this. Just learned so much. Mm. And I think it's such, you know, people will say, well, what about having a third-party consultant or contractor on the team? How does it work? And, well, actually, it works brilliantly if they're the right type of person, like better for an permanent member of staff for organizations that haven't quite figured out that rigid role descriptions are uh, the um, antithesis of having uh, real self-managing effective teams.
1: Yeah. Sharon and I, we reflect on that quite a yeah. lot. And um, and and we like the way that you've you've stepped away actually from talking solely about a framework here onto other elements that an, a framework can touch and other elements that organisations that are looking to scale need to think about in effect before they think about a framework.
2: Yeah, I mean, and for me, and you know, I. I've probably had some original thoughts in my time. I, I couldn't tell you which ones they were, but what I do know is that the the journey that I've been on with Less for the last it's been almost ten years now. That I've been working in less environments and having a having mentors like Craig Larman and Bob Vodder um, totally changed the way that I see all of this. And and I do really see that if people want to choose a framework and they believe in all the things we've been going through, then Less is it isn't easy. But it but it but it gives you all of this and it gives you all this insight and yeah it's a case of yeah what less is really good at is is as a an old CIO of mine used to say Chris when we asked I mean my friend Saloni said to him how are you going to measure our effectiveness Chris he said well look turn on one light bulb a day
1: yeah.
0: if
2: you can turn on one light bulb a day then you're doing a good job I think less you know turns on all the light bulbs. And as a consequence, you get to see everything Mm. and it may not be what you were expecting or you may not know how to deal with it, but it sets you up to, for you to solve your problems yourself in that respect by sticking to a very core set of rules and principles rather than kind of safe saying, oh, it doesn't matter about your context or it doesn't matter that you thought you were in a square room, but now it's a hexagonal room. Just, just follow this, just follow this recipe and this process and you'll, you'll get it. Like less is different and it aligns to everything that I've been saying.
1: In terms of applying something um, like less, what what have you seen, or less, or or any other scaled framework, Ben? What have you seen to be the main pitfalls um, in in your in your years of experience?
2: Um, number one, and this is the greatest of respect um, to every team that I've worked with. The vast majority of teams uh, don't actually use Scrum. Mm. And I've made this mistake a number of times when you go in and then you, we, we, we always start talking about less by saying, what's your product? Like, let's look at your product structure and let's understand, is it helping or hindering? Does it enable teams to work together? So often the way that a product is perceived isn't, could be better suited to what they're trying to achieve as an organization. So then we do all of that. And then teams have then saying, oh, well, we're already using scrum and you know, naively, I think yeah, it took their word for it. And then actually when we start trying to put, we start putting some of the less stuff in place. So like, well, this less stuff is awful. Like, oh, oh, this is so difficult. Like, no, no, there's no, no, there's no way we can like work on, 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 a, on that, like, the same sprint. And we come, why do we want to have a shared definition of done? And one of the scrum masters that the team lead and who tells us what work to do and how to do it. And then all of a sudden you realize that the biggest challenge then with beginning to use less is actually helping people use scrum properly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, see the, the, those anti-patterns have set in and you're you're actually putting a spotlight on them.
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you're saying, look, if you really want to make this work, I mean there's certain things that need to change. So one of the common things we see then is that one, the the product, the way that people are viewing product doesn't help. Uh, because, you know, if we View products as very small little silos. We have lots of product owners, which causes loads of loads of feature-based dependencies so that no one team can deliver one feature. We would have to bring all these disparate bits together, all from the fact we had the wrong view of the product. Then when the teams get started, they haven't really been using Scrum. And so for the first probably three months, things go slow and get a bit painful. Mm. And then after that, when we actually start using Scrum well, then all of a sudden teams... To slowly begin to just become better teams. And so one of the other things I would say are, is really, really beneficial when looking at all this, uh, looking at anything less, I would say arguably anything where you're trying to create feature teams, where you've got new people coming in, is spend the time helping the team set up. Often people believe that um, we can just chuck people together and, and magic will happen. And I think actually one of the, just a little tangent, I think this is what we're seeing with As we're coming out of the pandemic and people are saying, well, let's embrace remote working and remote working really works really well for us. I'm like, brilliant, brilliant. And I'm looking around and what I'm seeing is that a lot of the, a lot of the teams, a lot of the people are really enjoying remote working was because actually they weren't ever that strong as a team in the first place.
0: Mm.
2: Like teams that were really strong teams that knew they depended upon each other to succeed, who needed each other, are quite keen to get back in the office and have those conversations and reignite some of those relationships and actually work on solving the problems. Those that never really felt like part of a team, I had to believe, well, I can do my work at home. And they always say it's like a football team. You know, you don't get the a premiership or any kind of successful football team having people ring at the manager on a Monday morning saying, Oh, I'm just gonna train at home today. I'm gonna do some key uppies in the garden.
0: <laughs> so I'll like,
2: I'll come to the next one, maybe. No, no like they know they have to go to the training and they have to train together because they are a team and they only succeed if they work as a team. And so I think some of the pitfalls is that we don't understand what teams are or give them enough opportunity to really form solidly when talking about these types of organizational change. We don't put the effort into setting them up. It takes them a long time to actually become increasingly better at creating and delivering value
1: some organizations don't often have a choice if they've got an offshore model in operation. Uh, that co-location is going to be a hard thing to achieve on a regular basis. But a lot still can be done with people who can, can co-locate as part of that mm-hmm. team, right?
2: Well, it's I mean, it, it, what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about teams where like, we have one team and they're people on different continents. So yeah. we're talking about people who are on the same continent in the same time zone. Because one thing that we've always tried to do is keep teams in the same time zone Mm -hmm. even if that you know I think even if that means that maybe they're not in the same they can't get together in the office try and keep it in the same time zone if we've got um, what we call in less a requirement area in less huge a collection of requirements and we've got a number of teams working on that that view effectively then let's try and keep that area based in the same geographic region so at least those teams have the opportunity to come back in and, and work together it's when we begin to have teams that are split between different different geographic reason, regions, or when we have people working for effectively the same part of a backlog but in different geographic regions. It just gets we just get a bit slower, and it's sometimes less enjoyable. It can absolutely work. I'm not saying it can't work,
1: hmm. um,
2: but what you then have to do when you do have that kind of dispersion is really work again work on the relationships.
1: Yeah, and like like-
2: really work on yeah. the relationships and, and, and yeah you know, and get as close as you can be to friends with each other
1: yeah it you 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 have to make that relationship work for you you've got to like you said there's a certain building blocks you have to put in place to make sure that that's a fully uh functioning relationship you know it's a tight relationship um and you can be honest with each other in in those scenarios mm. as well okay um that's is really interesting in terms of you, you described a scenario there, Ben, where you, um, you, you know, you, you consult, um, you're, you approach an organization or an organization approaches you and it, it's um, maybe asking you about a potential uh, framework or, or introduction of less into their environment to mm-hmm. meet some of their goals. But what you've just described is that you don't go in there with an attitude to install or implement less. What you do go in there, first of all, doing is to take stock of what they've already got in terms of how well that they are structured, um, both culturally and, um, uh, as components within an organization to, to develop their product. Right. So you're not mm-hmm. going in there, um, saying less is the answer to all of your problems.
2: I try not to, I mean, it'd be brilliant if, if I, some people I do, I, I, I won't, I won't do that, so I don't do that now. I think that there is a huge amount of value in understanding both what's happening at a macro level and then at a team level as well. Mm. And I think that if you, if you invest time in understanding the context, then you will more quickly build trust and respect. And what I think I, I want to be seen as an organization is a trusted advisor. You don't mm. have to take my advice, but I want people to be asking me for my advice. Mm-hmm. And I think that means you have to, yeah, work on the relationships and understand the context. I don't think that going in without understanding the context helps. And this is one of the interesting things around team coaching. And when you look at the way professional team coaching is going, is actually understanding the context and being able to, you know, not advise but understand what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve it is really important. um Yeah, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with a. Uh, a professor at university who did work with a effectively board level coaching with a huge organization. I think it ended up being the, the biggest ever bankruptcy in UK history. Um And his role there ended up being like you, like he ended up kind of moving away from coaching, but becoming an advisor to the, to the chairperson because he didn't see that the board were able to make the tough decisions to save people's pensions. Mm. You know, but he and he he helped save tens, hundreds of millions of pounds of people's pensions. But because he understood the context, he got in there, he built that trust and respect. And I think that if we think of it I mean, away from professional team coaching, but agile coaching, part of that is about the advice you give. And I think that you can't, you have to understand the context if you want to build trust and respect. And if you want to be able to give that advice and really, you know, one shine a light on some of the bigger picture items, but then actually have something done about it. But this is not to discount that the ability for teams to work together on a much kind of a much broader product is that then you have to make sure that the teams are being invested in, that they're given the right opportunity, that there is a clear understanding about how there's going to be a partnership form between any managers and the scrum masters. You know, and this isn't about putting it in boxes. This is about understanding that, fuzz, creating fuzziness in between the roles. And it's getting the team supported and helping the teams get better. And you begin to kind of do it from the, do this holistically. I'm not going to say top down and bottom up because I hate that metaphor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I use that um, all the time. I love it. I
2: know. It. <laughs> but, but all we're doing is really like all we're doing is reinforcing the fact that the people at the top of at the, 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 the top. Like name me a, mm. you know, you look you, name me a, a a negative connotation, you know, with the word top. It's it's hard. Yeah. But name me neg- name name me a negative connotation with the word bottom. There are a few. Mm. So I prefer to think of this as holistically. I try and move away from saying top down and bottom up because then we also begin to then say that the middle goes last. And we all know, but often it's the middle management that are probably the ones who have the most resistance and can be the most effective allies in the journey. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of viewing it, trying to think of this holistically and much more systemically,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think, because I don't think top down and bottom up really kind of speaks to systemic understanding.
1: Yeah, I think, no, I... Th- I, I I have to agree with you to a certain extent in that, you know, it's that description gives you too much of a distinction around the areas that can really make a difference and everyone can make a difference. That responsibility has to be felt equally um, within an organization. And Sharon and I talk about it all the time. We belong in the middle in our roles, but that means that we have so much knowledge Around Mm. the the areas of the business, the teams that can make a difference. And we, we work hard to build those relationships on a day-to-day basis, whether Sharon in her PMO capacity, mine in Scrum Master, um, program management, uh, whatever role I need to play. Um, But yeah, I think I, I, I take that on board (laughs) because you've made me think twice now about (laughs) that kind of wording. So thank you.
2: But, and just as, and, uh, like, as a little one, uh it's amazing. i always, I always feel un- I feel uncomfortable with lots of the labels that we have. Yeah. Right. And so I always think, no, I would prefer to call it this, and it's really surprising. And sometimes people react so not not you at all, Nisha, right? And but it's uh, a <laughs> uh, in LinkedIn and the rest of it. You'll say, you know, I think product backlog refinement's a really terrible name.
1: Right.
2: I think it's I think it's really terrible. Um, I think I think there's like because it affects what we're talking about, It's uh, it's. It's upfront analysis of user needs. I mean, that's really what it is. And I think that when and so I started a conversation on that and it was like, oh, why are you trying to change the name? I'm not trying to change the name. I'm not gonna start lobbying. I just don't think the name is useful. And the same with top down and bottom up, all the same with I think sprint review. I'm not too keen on that. I prefer to think of that as like a increment retrospective rather than just being like this review. And I like throwing out these things and I like the debate around it. So, yeah, d- yeah if anyone wants to debate with me around this, I'm more than happy to because I, I learned so much.
1: Sharon I and so I much. will start a post going and we will we yeah. want you to, to take <laughs> nice. part. But, yeah, I think it's it. their labels, right, Sharon, that we um, accept over time. Absolutely. Um, Right, we we understand yeah. them as part of um, a framework or a method that we're adopting that at that particular time. We just we take them on board. We don't we don't question them. It's when you've actually um, had to translate these labels to people that are not immediately part of an agile community within your organization, and you've got to take it apart and with clean language say, okay, I'm going to describe product refinement to you, and as you said. This is what it is. It's a mechanism to describe user needs, right? And if you explain it like that to someone who is not familiar with Agile or Scrum, it immediately starts to make sense. Yeah, yeah.
2: like let's get together and learn about actually the problem that you've got. Mm. Uh, teach us about the problem you've got. Mm. I mean, that, that's that's the that's the, the real cusp of it. But yeah, it's a uh, it gets lost. It got lost at some point.
1: Mm. Well, hey, look, let's
0: start to revive yep. it in key conversations, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, Ben, we're at that point where we ask our guest, um, what are your key takeaways?
2: My key yeah. takeaways? That sometimes you got to pick the moment to challenge certain language. Hmm. I think, you know, it's... Uh, I'm all for renaming things, but I think that sometimes you have to be really aware of, of your audience a little bit, you know, and not coming across as too combative. So I know that's something that I I fear that I may do sometimes, but I think I've uh, I think picking the language and and deciding which of your language to change, and maybe this is that primary recency effect because that's the last one we've spoken about, but that's the, that's the one thing that's really sticking out in my in my head right now, um, and my uh, my holiday analogy maybe i'll spend some like i i think there's a it's something that came to me this morning so i'd be interested to hear from you guys or from anyone else that's listening what they thought of it because if it's worth keeping to it maybe i'll um i'll work to evolve that even further do they work as takeaways
0: absolutely they're
2: a bit prosaic they absolutely
0: right? no they're brilliant thank you uh nisha how about you
1: are oh, so many um ben i think we need to have you back dude so Um, One of mine is definitely context is king. Relationships are absolutely key, as is product purpose and getting that right. Even before you start looking at prescribing a framework um, that an organization needs to adopt. So those would be mine. Um, Loved your analogy, by the way. I think you need to develop it and um, yeah, definitely be back for loads of ideas that I've already got for a part two my friend
2: okay thank you I'll see if, see if I can uh, I'll, I'll write a holiday journal for a made up <laughs> holiday and i see if I can talk about i see if I can talk about all these things just for a story about going on holiday
1: yeah get it online <laughs> blog style all right
0: <laughs> Sharon share go on oh so I think uh, mine would be when you're working with those third party suppliers as uh, Ben discussed it's just having one team creating that open, honest collaboration and not thinking of it as us versus them. And then um, speaking the same language again, as uh, Ben has described and keeping the language simple so everybody can understand what we're talking about. Um, Sometimes using certain terminology just doesn't um, resonate with certain people in the organization. So yeah, I'm gonna go one team and think about the language.
2: Love it. Nice. It does um, remind me of the the quote when you're talking about keeping it simple. I totally agree. And then that there's a large element of learning around this as well. And there was that old phrase, it's better to train them and risk they leave than don't and risk they stay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like that. <laughs> yeah, equip them and start small. I think yeah. scaling can be a daunting thing. So to be able to start small and prove that you can do it um, can can really help you on your journey. From what yeah, I see, stay,
2: like, stay small, everyone. Like don't create big organisations. <laughs> stay small. It's better for the environment, <laughs> and it, I mean, it makes you. Make, helps you make better decisions. I
1: like it. Like it, Ben. If people want to find you, seek you out, um, and gain from your experience, what platforms uh, can they find you on? Tell us.
2: Uh, LinkedIn, not a bad one. Like i'm reason i'm re, i monitor it i'm not as active as i was but yeah you can find me on linkedin uh twitter's um at ben w maynard you can also find me at the less matters uh community and podcast so there's less matters podcast um which comes out a couple times a month you can get in touch with me via there or the less matters community which you'll find on linkedin as well
1: brilliant thank you ben Thanks everyone for watching and listening. Look out for our next video. Please like and follow and subscribe the delivery space on LinkedIn and Insta. See you next time. Bye.